Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Hey, we have so many ways for you to join the show. Of course, you can join us in our interactive chat room. You can get there on freeno.net, pound Ask Noah Show. Of course, you can find that chat room on the website at asknoahshow.com if you don't have an IRC client. Hey, we also have another way that you can participate. That's our interactive mumble room. That's back from the Jupiter Broadcasting days. We're still on their server, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Join the on-air channel, and you can ask your question. Tubit did that. Hey, Tubit, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey. How we doing? Uh, it's just been another one of those days. I hear you. How can I help this evening? So I have a question when it comes to audio levels, when it comes to live streaming OBS. So kind of a quick overview. Our church has audio is coming into a Midas M32 mixer, which we then through a separate pair of bus outputs sent over to uh, Blackmagic Design's ATEM switcher, which then outputs it to an HDMI that goes to a Magewell USB capture card, which we're capturing on a live stream PC to do our live stream with OBS. Now, the audio levels on the Magewell are on the uh, Blackmagic uh, ATEM switcher are well into the red. OBS's own indicator for its audio levels are well into the red, and people on live stream claim they can barely hear anything. Hmm. So, um, what you're dealing with is a, a balance between gain and headroom. Gain being how much we want to amplify the signal, and headroom being the difference between the signal and the noise floor. So, for example, if I to any wire, two bit or any uh amplification device if i just leave it to its own device is going to amplify noise and so the trick is to get the signal as hot as possible and thereby increasing the difference between the amount of signal that we have and the amount of noise that we have that is to say the signal to noise ratio um the what is happening in that setup undoubtedly is that the original signal is too soft to begin with and what's happening is throughout this process, one device after the other is amplifying this already too low signal. And so what ends up happening by the time it gets to the very end is, uh, or excuse me, it's starting very, uh, sorry, other way around. It's starting it, it, much too high, uh, much too hot. And then what's happening as it goes along the audio chain, various devices are trying to normalize or level to wherever its zero is. And by the time it gets out to to the audience, because you've started um, and 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 everybody has tried to pull it down a little bit to, to to keep it from clipping, what ends up happening is you wind up with the end sources simultaneously distorted and too low. And so the way to fix that problem is this: so you said the the audio sources uh, it originates in your in your in your Midas uh, 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 console there, right? It's a separate bus feed from our Midas M32, which is a 
it's kind of a bigger brother to the Behringer X32. Yep. Yep. In fact, they actually, I believe they use the same preamps in the, in the, uh, I believe the preamps that are in the X32 came from the Midas. So here, here's how you fix that problem too, bit. What, what you would do is you would start at, on the Midas console and you'll have a, a channel gain section. And what you want to do in the, in the old days of analog audio, we didn't care if we bumped a little bit into the red. In fact, you kind of wanted the needles to bounce just a little bit into the red. And that's how you knew that, again, back to that signal-to-noise ratio, you're pushing the maximum amount of signal that you can and minimizing the, the noise as best as possible. In in the digital world, to include the, the Midas box, any we can't really tolerate clipping anymore because analog distortion, is it's, it's tolerable. You can tell it's distorting a little bit, but it, it has its own feel to it. Digital clipping is wholly unacceptable. When something clips digitally, it just sounds like this screech. Um and so it's 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 entirely intolerable. And so the way that the audio industry has um, has worked around that is we came up with a new zero. They call it the analog equivalent zero, and that's essentially zero on your analog meters, and it's roughly ten dB lower on uh, on a digital on a digital console. So on the, the console that I'm sitting right in front of, for example, my levels bounce uh, at uh, at about ten dB below zero. And that gives me 10 dB of buffer room so that I don't distort the audio. And that's as hot as you can get the signal without running into the risk of distorting, because obviously uh, speakers and, and music is never going to be a consistent sound. Once, so that my, my guess is of, of the exact point of the problem is probably in the gain settings on the Midas. And, or, that, well, there's actually one other place it could be. Uh, the gain settings on the Midas, my guess is that the input is very low. And my guess is why you're not noticing that in the house audio or why you're not noticing that if you have like some sort of a recording or anything else is because those buses are making up for that gain. And so my signal might be a little noisier, but for the most part, nobody notices. I'll bet you if you look at that gain, what you'll find is it's nowhere near close to uh, zero or, t or really where it should be is normalized at 10 dB. Um, you're probably f well below that. After you've set that properly, then you can go down the road and one of the settings you'll want to change, there are different ways to send a signal because there are different devices that um, that take in a signal. So, for example, if you're going to another professional audio device, which in your case you are, you want to be using line level signal. That is to say we've not amplified the signal at all. We're, we're just sending line level. Um, and you'll want the other device on the other side of the Midas you said uh, the from the Midas, it's going directly into that ATEM switcher? Correct. Okay, so the ATEM switcher is another professional device, so it's also going to be configured um, likely by default for line-level signal. Um, but you'll want to verify that on both ends. You'll want to ver verify that the, that the submix is sent to send a line-level signal, and then you'll want to verify that the inputs on the ATEM are not taking in a, a, an amplified signal or they're not trying to use any sort of microphone preamps or anything like that, any sort of amplification. It's just taking that line-level signal. Um, and then how are you getting the audio? Oh, you said the audio is coming in over HDMI into the Magwell? Correct. Okay, so that's good news because it means that uh, because it's a digital signal, because it's digital audio, it's just carried as part of HDMI. We don't really have to do anything. The ones and zeros are just going to get there. Um, so where, uh, so it, the, the problem is going to be uh, before that ATEM switcher, almost certainly. And my guess is it will be in the gain settings of the Midas or in the output volume of the 
of the of the submix that's being fed to the atom switcher. Um, and so what you would do is you will you will you'll start from your source and get the level as hot as you can without it, without it distorting. And again, about a 10 dB buffer because it's a digital because it's a digital board. And then every step in the audio chain, you will raise the gain or you'll raise the volume until you, you don't want to be in the red again. You want to be about 10 dB below that, which um, and you'll just watch those sig- as, it, as it goes all the way through. Um, and if you if, if if you still if you can't find the problem after after walking through that, you give me a call back and, and maybe we can set up a time during the week where I can uh, we can do some sort of a, a camera Google Hangout, something like that. And we can figure, get it, get it straightened out. OK. Cool. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you make your voice heard and become a part of the program. Jason calls from Massachusetts. Hey, Jason. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, hello, Noah. So I am trying to play uh, the VR game Half-Life Alex under Linux. Okay. Uh, previously, when the game came out, it was Windows only, but Valve officially supported it through Steam Play. I was able to complete the game multiple times through Steam Play, but now that the native Linux version is out, it runs decently on my system, but if I'm looking at the pistol and I shoot, there's a very high probability that my entire system freezes, hmm. and I have to like SSH into the machine to save it. What are you using for a graphics card? I have a um, an AMD RX or Radeon RX 580. Okay. And what distro are you using? I am using Kubuntu 20.04. Wow, that man! You couldn't have asked for a better recipe to try. If if something was going to work on Linux, you would think that would be it, huh? AMD graphics on basically an Ubuntu base. Um, where I would yeah, where, that's why I was. Where I would start with troubleshooting this problem is this. The, the, the first thing I would do is I would try, if you have access, do you have access to a spare hard drive you can use for a day? Uh, I could get access to that, yes. I, I think what, where I would start my troubleshooting is I, I would start by going to a, a, a regular Ubuntu base with the GNOME desktop in, in, installed. And that that's not... Um, that's not anything that I th- I would necessarily jump to as the conclusion. I, I run Kubuntu myself. I would expect, like you expect, to have no problems with it because the the underlying drivers are going to be the same and the underlying operating system is going to be the same. But that said, the folks at Valve, the folks that are writing Steam and testing it, they're testing likely with Ubuntu proper. And so if there is a, some weird bug or some weird thing in, in, in the plasma shell that's causing a problem, some weird conflict, that would be the kind of thing that wouldn't be caught, especially this early uh, in the game, right? I mean, there's there there aren't a lot of people testing on on various distros, and certainly um, Steam's largest platform is go, probably going to be Windows. So, so I would start there. I would start with um, with a, with a stock install of of Ubuntu with GNOME. See if you have that same problem. If you do, it is entirely possible that there is just a bug in the game. And that that's something that the developers from the game will have to fix. And it, there may be nothing that you can do. But, I, you know, really where I come to is I've noticed a, a bajillion and one problems uh, with NVIDIA graphics, um, random things freezing. I'm not just in the game, but the, the desktop environment. And so if you told me that you were using uh, NVIDIA graphics, I would suspect that there's a problem with your system. In this particular case, I'm not sure it's anything on your end. That makes sense. 
So give that a shot. And the other thing I will do is I will reach out to my buddy Ryan, uh, who knows more about AMD graphics and game cards and the folks that make them. And I'll see if he uh, has had any experience or maybe he's even tried this game. I'll see if he has any advice to add. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. This week I want to tell you about a program called Free File Sync. Now, Free File Sync is an open source folder comparison sync tool uh, that you can use to back up your data to an external disk, such as Google Drive or any other storage path. Now, you can use different locations and that those locations might be a USB disk, it could be Google Drive, it could be a cloud storage device, you could do it over SFTP, you could do it over FTP. There are a lot of guides and there are a lot of people out there promoting the use of Google Drive on Linux. The problem is there really is no proper free and open source way to do this. Um, the solutions that do exist to use Google Drive natively on on, on Linux um, are, are, well, it's not even really native, but there's third-party software like InSync. The problem is it's a premium non-open source software. So the great thing about Free File Sync is it is cross-platform, works on Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. You have the ability of comparing folders before the synchronization occurs. It supports Google Drive, SFTP, FTP. It offers the ability to sync your files to different storage paths. You also have the ability for multiple synchronization options. So you can update files uh, to the target from the source. You can mirror the files between the target and the source. It supports two-way synchronization. This is something that I have been looking for in a, in a, in a um, file synchronization tool for a while uh, and, and allows modification to that target folder or source folder. Version controls are available if you're an advanced user and want to take advantage of that. Real-time sync is available. The ability to schedule batch jobs. And uh, the I I originally started looking for a solution to more or less replicate, if you remember back in the late 90s, the Palm Pilots and the Hot Sync days. Um, the, the concept was this, that you would place your Palm Pilot in the cradle and you would press the Hot Sync button. And what the Hot Sync button would do is it would initiate a bi-directional sync process in which all of the data from your computer would be dumped into your Palm Pilot and any data that had not previously been backed up to your desktop would be sucked from your Palm Pilot and placed on the desktop Palm desktop software. Now this was really fantastic because what it allowed you to do is you could compose this before internet was available on mobile devices of course. You had the ability to compose emails on your mobile device, you had uh, the ability to write documents and, and, and photos and uh, small amounts of music so on and so forth. All of these could be done on the portable device and then uploaded onto the computer with the push of a button. Similarly, any of the new contacts that you may have had or any emails that you may have saved or received, all of those will sync down to your Palm Pilot from your computer. And um, I found myself with a similar need in that I have the vast majority of my data stored on my NAS in my house. The problem is if I'm going to be gone for an extended period of time, there's obviously smaller sets of the data that I wish to work on when I'm away from the house or wish to be able to get some work done. Um, the way that I have had to go about that in the past is just take all the files I want on the NAS, put them in a folder just in case something happens to my laptop. I still have the original files. Uh, and um, then I would just make a copy of the files onto my laptop, do the work I was going to do, assuming everything went to plan. I would just move the files back to the NAS when I got home and then delete the little backup copy that I had made. Worked okay. But eventually I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to streamline that process. And so I came up with a, uh, a hack together set of rsync scripts that basically 
pulled everything from my laptop, dumped it to the NAS, and then pulled the files that I wanted on the NAS and brought them back down to my laptop. Now, that has been working for me uh, for a while, but I was looking for a more robust solution. And so when I came across uh, Free File Sync, um, the, 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 the thing that Free File Sync does that I, I'm, I've not seen other applications do is it, it's a twofold thing. The first is it allows bidirectional sync. Now, there are some other competitors like uh, Nextcloud File Syncing and CFile that do that. The thing that Free File Sync supports that those do not is both the Nextcloud uh, Syncing and CFile are not really designed to sync over a NAS. The reason for that is, is this. Let's say you map an NFS share. And let's say we'll call our NFS share uh, Noah's Files. And I then have a copy of Noah's Files on my laptop. And so my desktop has that NFS share mounted and maybe C files watching it and syncing it around with the rest of uh, the rest of my files. Well, what, what happens if, God forbid, the power goes out on my file server and the file server restarts, the NFS share breaks because the server's gone down. And all of a sudden, C file looks in the folder that it's supposed to sync and all the files are gone. C file says, well, I better sync the delete around. I guess he deleted all the files. There's nothing here anymore. Sync it around. And all of a sudden, all of the other C file instances go down. Now, you can read about the warnings as to why you shouldn't do this. I'll be the first to tell you that I did do this and it worked just fine because I had some safeguards in place to try to prevent that scenario from happening. But it always made me uncomfortable because the developers didn't recommend it. Hence, the hacked together set of rsync scripts. So, Free File Sync specifically advertises and is designed for syncing folders across a network share. Heck, you can sh sync over SFTP or FTP connections. So uh, I, this is a really great piece of software, something I really recommend if you're the kind of person that has two different locations that you have to keep in sync. I would not recommend this as a replacement for something like Dropbox. I would not recommend this as a replacement for something like, um, you know, I know they advertise Google Drive, but to be honest with you, the fact that it, uh, it, it it's either scheduled or run by hand, to the best of my understanding. And maybe there is a paid tier that you can get, and so maybe there's some more uh, configuration options that I, I've not dug into. And if that's the case, then I apologize. But it appears to me to be a that it's it the process must be kicked off either manually or you can you can schedule a time. And of course, the problem with doing that is um, the the files are not going to be immediately up to date. I was running our Monday, I'm a ham radio operator, I was running our, our Monday night net, and um, I, I attempted to do it from my handheld in, in my upstairs bedroom, and halfway through the net, somebody said, hey, the signal's really bad, it's very difficult to understand you. I thought, oh, I better switch radios. Well, the problem is I had all of my net notes and the script and all that stuff sitting up on my desktop. All I had to do was click file save and Kate, run downstairs, and open the same file up because by the time I got from my bedroom downstairs, C file kindly took note of the fact that I had made changes to this file, saved those changes, sunk those changes down to my, my workstation that sits downstairs. And so in the whatever, 45 seconds it took me to get from my upstairs bedroom to my, my lab computer, the file that I was working on upstairs, I immediately had all of the changes sunk downstairs. That's a really useful feature. But the problem is it, the, the 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 that's a really useful feature if you want immediate access to your files. The problem is 
it doesn't necessarily work over an S. And so I see this uh, ICC file and free file sync as two different solutions for two different problems and two different purposes. Um, but both of them get a huge thumbs up. And so if you were looking for something specifically to try to synchronize uh, two files bidirectionally, if you're using it particularly on a mobile device, or I could see this working very well in business services, as well as if you just want, if you have some data that you just absolutely can't lose, lose and have to back it up to something like Google Drive and you want an automated GUI application to do that so you don't have to go through the web UI, Free File Sync is a great way to do that. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Joel calls from Georgia. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's, how's it going, Noah? Hey, man. I'm doing great. Hanging in there and um, thankfully I'm working from home for now. I'm I think my company has made me uh, work. It's going to make me work from home till August. So I've, even though it's opening up, I'm still going to be a little bit. It's going to still going to be a little chill here, even though my state has opened up pretty uh, pretty good. So, um, so today, I want to uh, bring up the topic of uh, audio of um, audio files. Um, I guess well, audio p h i l e. Uh, okay, sure. I guess. Yeah. Yep, and I'm. I'm, and it, how it relates to Linux, I sort of caught the audio file bug by when I got the promo when I signed up for the promo for Title, the four months for four dollars trial that's going on, and I sort of got me interested in getting some gear. I got just I got a AudioQuest Dragonfly Black, and um, and I'm curious if and for some reason when I try using it in Linux. I can't switch the audio. I can't switch the audio from well the bit rate that the that the Dragonfly Black is trying to detect. It's stuck at the lower 44.1 kilohertz uh, kilohertz setting, but I want to set it up to the higher CD quality um, setting on there. And uh, from what I see from the documentation on the Dragonfly, it seems to Linux support is a little, but. Um, but it is like it is. It does work on forty-four point one, but I just can't get it on higher bitrate. Have you ever had experience with this sort of device or a DAC? No, um, I haven't. Although I will tell you that the times that I have done things with high-quality audio DACs, I'm usually using specific software. Um, I'm not just using you know VLC or QMMP something like that. I'm certainly not relying just on the on the also drivers. Um, the one of the things that I might try is, have you played with Volumio in the past? Uh, not, not yet. I've heard about it, but I haven't, uh, haven't played with it around with that. Here's what's great about Volumio. It is a web-based music player. So the idea is you essentially, you flash the Volumio image onto a Raspberry Pi. And uh, you just start the Raspberry Pi up and browse to the IP address of that Pi, and you'll see a very nice, uh, intuitive web interface for playing music. And, of course, whatever you choose to play through the web interface, it spits out through the onboard headphone jack. Now, the reason I suggest that you take a look at Volumio is Volumio was expressly designed to work with external USB DACs. And, in fact, that is exactly what I do. At my house, I have a small little USB DAC. One of the features I think that could be particularly useful to you is the fact that because Volumio is designed as an audiophiles player, it has support for bit rates much higher than what you see um, in, in traditional audio players, as well as, I think you were talking about the sampling rate, uh, is, is much higher. So you can do a 48-bit sampling rate instead of 44.1. 
um, those kinds of things would will, will work better because there are people on there specifically trying to solve those problems for that specific device. Now, once you once you've established if it will even work with the Linux kernel at that higher sampling rate, then you can go back and say, well, maybe I'd like, you know, can I get it to work with my 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 desktop distribution? But one of the things I found, and this kind of applies to the the person that called earlier today. One of the things I found uh, very useful in troubleshooting in Linux is find find the the niche of Linux that has the most support that has the 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 best chance of getting that thing to work and then problem solve your way from there. It works here, it doesn't work there. What are the differences between these two things? Why does it work here? Why does it not work here? And then you can start comparing and contrasting and either file a bug report and say, "Hey, this is not working and here's why." Or Hey, this is not working, and here are the socio-political reasons as to why that has that's not being worked on on a desktop distribution, for example. So, does that answer your question? I guess that's un- yeah. That does that does not answer my question. I do understand understand that viewpoint. Maybe that'll give me an excuse to get a Raspberry Pi now. I guess. Um, also, just real quickly, I want to throw this across to you. What are your thoughts on Grado headphones? I know I, the Dragonfly Black. Which sorry, which brand? Which brand of headphones? Grado. Grado. R A Grado. Captain, like G as in giraffe. R A D as in Delta. O as in Oscar. Okay, I I I I have to be honest with you. I'm not I'm not familiar with that particular brand of headphones. A quick Google search does show me that they make headphones ranging from three from three hundred bucks to to three thousand dollars. So it, it's it's clear um, that they're a quality manufacturer. But um, I don't have any many I don't have any experience with them specifically. Well, well, actually, well, actually, I think you're if you're look you're not, not I think um if you're going down down to a low, I think you're looking at the higher end of their product range, they do have some products that are in like the sub-100 to mid-$200 mid, uh, range. That, uh, that in, I'm specifically talking about the um, uh, S, SR series headphones. Um, these were a pick that I remember way back way back during uh, the revision three days that Patrick Norton re- recommended. Oh, sure. And that's why that was, yeah, that was a go-to headphone that I, that, that I saw and was like, hey, maybe I should probably get it. So, and Side note: I did win it in, in my first eBay bid, so that's that's good too. You can find plenty of good used audio gear, gear on eBay, and that's that's pretty cool for any of people who want to get into get into the bug of audiophilism. Here's a free tip for anybody out there buying audio gear on or anything on eBay for that matter. There's a site out there called Bidnapper. B i d n i n a p p e r. Bidnapper. And what Bidnapper does, anybody who has been on eBay for any significant amount of time understands that the way that you win auctions at the lowest possible price is to do what's known as sniping. Sniping is where you wait until the last possible moment for the auction to end, and then you enter the minimum bid necessary to win the auction, thereby uh, winning the auction at the lowest possible price at at the last possible minute. Um, What Bidnapper does for me that I really enjoy is the fact that most of the time sniping requires a certain amount of commitment to that item because I have to rearrange my schedule to be available whenever the auction happens to end. And of course the auction will always end depending on what the seller chose a certain amount of days, a week's time, whatever from the time that the auction started. And so if the seller happens to list it at two 30 in the morning, the auction's going to end at two 30 in the morning. If the seller decides to list it at 
12 in, in the afternoon, it's, the auction's going to end at 12 in the afternoon, and it could be anywhere in between. BidNapper allows you to schedule what you want to bid, and it will enter that bid at the last possible moment. Now, that does two things for me. One is it alleviates that that commitment level of I have to be here watching this item. Um, the other thing it does that I really appreciate, though, it allows you to decide ahead of time what is this uh, this device worth. I have watched people bid well in excess of what it would cost them to purchase the item new to buy it used on eBay. And I think uh, to a certain extent, they just get into the process of trying to win and it becomes this competitive thing. Um, BidNapper kind of works against that. It allows you to sit down and create a rational idea of here's what I would like to spend on this item. This is the most I'm willing to spend. You put it in there and then you'll just get an email if you want or not. So I would highly suggest people, and I, it's a great idea, Joel, uh, buying audio gear on eBay, especially secondhand, let somebody else take the hit on it. You, you buy it, use most audio files tend to take pretty good care of their stuff. Totally, totally. And uh, hope, hope you have a good rest of your day and Noah. Hey, you too, Joel. Thanks for calling in. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624, the email. Live at asknoahshow.com. That is how you join the program. The Raspberry Pi 4 has been uh, released with 8 gigabytes of RAM. There's a new model out. Now, the new 8 gigabyte variant is selling for $75, and many people are looking to use it as a low-powered Linux desktop. Um, this is uh, this is a this is a big win for us. I have been personally uh, trying the Pi to, to for a very specific purpose, and I think that the new Pi Four might finally uh, nail this for me. And, and that problem is this: uh, a while back, I got really hooked on the Nvidia Shield so much so that to this day, I would tell you that it is probably the best media player out there. And the reason that I got hooked onto the NVIDIA Shield was a couple of reasons. First of all, it wasn't really designed as a media player. It was designed actually to be a gaming device. And because it was designed to be a gaming device, and they put a gaming style processor in there. Um, the thing is ridiculously overpowered, meaning that I wait for nothing when I want to play my media. The second thing I liked about it is it does have a wired Ethernet jack, and so streaming things across the internet uh, over the network uh, doesn't put a large load on my on my Wi-Fi. And then the third thing, and the one of the most critical essential pieces to this uh, to to a streaming media player is it accepts commands from an IR remote. Now, why would you want? Why would you care if your media player accepts commands from an IR remote? What's wrong with the built-in one? What's wrong with your phone? I really, I'm, I'm old-fashioned in that I want my TV to function like a TV. I want to sit down on my couch. I want to grab the remote. I want to push one button. I want the TV to come on. I want the streamer to come on. Then I want to use the arrows on the same remote that I have in my hand to select my media. I want just want to use the volume button when I want to turn something up. I want to use the pause button and the play button. I want that all to be on a single remote. And so that leads me down the path of a universal remote. Well, into we, we at Ultaspeed Technologies, we are, or we work a lot with, um, Universal Remotes, and the, the company Universal Remotes makes really good stuff um, that is typically programmed by computer, uh, by some special software, but it, it, it's essentially what the Logitech Harmony should have been and, and imitates to be. Uh, the Universal Remote does that in spades. It makes the Logitech Harmony start to look like a bad science project. Plus, they don't build things that then they deprecate a couple of years later and give everybody 30 days notice. So, I mean, there's that. Um, Lately on the scene, there's been a new company, and the company is called Intiset, and Intiset makes a universal remote control um, that is, in my opinion, the best bang for the buck. They're about $25 on eBay, or uh, excuse me, Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes for you. 
But what the Innocent Remote does that makes it so fantastic is not only do they have a pre-populated list of codes, by the way, they include codes for things like the NVIDIA Shield, but even if they didn't have a code, you can still use the remote because it has a learning mode and it can actually learn the IR codes from the, the original factory remote, meaning it's the last universal remote you'll ever have to buy as long as the device you're trying to control accepts IR commands. Now, the first generation of the NVIDIA Shield had IR. The second generation of the NVIDIA Shield had IR and the Pro version did not have IR in the slightly less expensive non-Pro version. Now, the newest version of the NVIDIA Shield, the one that just came out this year, has a Bluetooth triangle-like remote, and I do believe there is some sort of IR built into the remote, but the NVIDIA Shield itself does not. Now, I contacted Intiset about this problem and said, what can we do about this? And they have come up with a third-party add-on IR receiver that they are selling. Now, I purchased one of these IR receivers, plugged into the NVIDIA Shield. I wasn't really impressed with um, how that worked. I wasn't really impressed with how it functioned, particularly in Kodi. Um, what does all this have to do within, with the, the Raspberry Pi 4? I apologize. I, I'm treading on your attention span a little bit, but stay with me. As I, as I got to a point... Eventually, what I realized was I was just going to continue to buy the older version of the NVIDIA Shield Pro and use that with IR. And intermittently, what I've been doing is testing the Raspberry Pi loaded with OpenELECT, which is essentially a distro that only runs Kodi. The reality is, while from time to time I do take advantage of either Netflix or the Amazon Prime video that, that the apps that come available on the NVIDIA Shield, for the most part, I spend, I'd say, 85 to 90% of my time at Kodi. And I stream a lot of movies, my movies, the movies that I own, the movies that I have ripped. Same with TV shows. I've gotten my kids into doing that, and it's it's been heaven. We had, um, obviously, some protests, and as part of the protests, my internet was a little flaky this week. My kids didn't notice because all of their media is local and owned inside of our house. I also like the fact that uh, I have some control over what my kids are viewing and, and what they're able to watch. So there's that part of it as well. Um, how this relates back to the pie. So I have been trying these Raspberry Pis every so often to try to find one that can stream all of this media and run OpenELECT seamlessly. Now, the first generation of the Raspberry Pi 4, the four gigabyte version came out earlier this year, late last year, somewhere in there. I gave it a shot and it was like 95% of the way there. DVDs played just fine. Blu-rays would hang up and they would it would stream for a little bit and then it would have to buffer. I'd say it maybe buffered two, three times throughout a, a, a you know one and a half hour movie. Now, maybe that's acceptable for some people. It drives my family and I nuts. So, so far, I've not been able to replace this. I am very much hoping, and I have one on order, I am very much hoping that the eight gigabyte version will be enough to stream Blu-rays without any issues. And, um, and I hope that this will be a really good working solution for Cody. A lot of places that support the Raspberry Pi, a lot of places in the Raspberry Pi community, I guess you should say, are really focusing on a very good Kodi experience, an open elect experience. Um, the company Flerk, which is the company who makes a little IR receiver that you can use uh, for Kodi or for the Raspberry Pi, actually makes one of the best cases for the Raspberry Pi that I've seen. It actually looks like a little mini Apple case. Uh, and it's built very, very well. It's built out of brushed aluminum. Looks very, very sharp. Looks like a factory device. 
Uh, and so they make a Kodi specific version. So it would be very great if I could buy these devices and replace all of the streamers in my house. Um, again, I also, you know, there's a lot of people that are looking for low power desktops or want to have desktops in multiple locations. And up until now, it really hasn't been practical. So the, the fact that you can buy any one of your kids a computer for 75 bucks, just plug the thing in and use it is absolutely fantastic. And so I'm happy to see that. Uh, so I've ordered one. I will let you know when uh, when we when we receive the new Pi and how it works. I'm also interested to see if they've solved the heat issue that plagued um, the original generation, the Raspberry Pi 4. It seemed like that was kind of a problem. So we'll see if the 8 gigabyte version has improved in any way from that perspective. Again, one 855 No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Two bit in the chat room says, I've never had an issue with my Volumio on my Raspberry Pi 3. It only has one gigabyte of RAM. Now that's in response to JJ4884 who says, what's a good amount of RAM for a Pi to run Volumio? I'll tell you, the Volumio box that is running my house right now is an original Raspberry Pi Generation 1. You want to know how many times that Volumio box has gone down? Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. It's never crashed. Ever. In the three years that I've had it running um, to the point that I actually have a four gigabyte version of a Raspberry Pi four in a case sitting down in my basement. And it's been my intention for the longest time to switch it. But uh, I'm so hesitant to take working technology out and swap it for quote unquote upgraded technology when there's really nothing to gain. It's perfectly responsible, responsive. It works. It plays the music. I have it tied into my Rivendell automation system, and so it's uh, it it's it's doing a lot of automated functions as well as Home Assistant to schedule my bells and stuff like that. So I don't I haven't really had much of a reason to to replace it. But if you haven't checked out Volumio, you absolutely should. They also make a Volumio that is makes a professional device for playing audio. So it's essentially uh, custom hardware built around their Volumio software product. Get 855 no, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. Now, you're familiar with contact tracing. We talked about the privacy of COVID last week. Minnesota is in a, uh, is, is in a bit, they've had, they've had a rough week. Um, George Floyd is a gentleman who was killed when a Minnesota police depart, uh, police officer uh, kneeled on his neck uh, for, for upwards of eight minutes. And, um, uh, understandably, people were very upset when they found out that this guy needlessly lost his life, and uh, that proceeded to generate riots all over the country. Uh, quote, in some cities like Minneapolis, though, officials are starting to turn to a familiar tool to investigate networks of protesters. The tool is called contact tracing, and it's a familiar tool that people have been hearing about frequently in the weeks as an important component of a comprehensive corona pandemic response. According to Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington, officials there have been using what they describe without going into much detail as contact tracing in order to build out a picture of protester affiliations, a process that lists officials in the state, say, has led to the conclusion of much of the protest activity that is being fueled from people from outside of the state coming in. Since using this tool to help fight the corona pandemic is by definition an invasion of privacy, contact tracers need to know personal details about you, such as who you've been around, where you've been, over a not insignificant period of time. That is to say, probably about two to three weeks. And now, it's tool that is apparently being used to build a completely different non-coronavirus-related informational picture of Americans. What you need to realize here is the technology that you carry in your pocket 
is vastly more powerful than you realize. And companies and governments are lining up at the door to get the wealth of information that those devices produce. And we have absolutely got to be careful that in our desire to fight the pandemic, to leverage technology, and try to make life as convenient as we can by utilizing technology, that we don't allow privacy to be completely overrun. And, you know, as 2 points out, the entire year of 2020 has essentially been one big riot. And I, 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 would, I don't want to get too far drug away from the tech side of the story, but I, I will say this. It, it, there is a genuine lack of compassion and a genuine lack of love that is going around right now. And it's, it's kind of terrifying. Um, I spent Saturday hanging out with my kids, hanging out with my wife. Uh, in our backyard and just watching them run around and play and have fun and do the things that families do on the weekends without having to pay pay attention to the the news cycle Uh, coming in that night and finding out that protesters were 70 miles away from me uh, storming buildings and burning stuff down. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a shock, but I won't let that be the thing that makes me give up my privacy. I will not let that be the threat that makes me say, okay, well, I don't care about rights anymore. I don't care about privacy. I don't care about liberty. This is what I would consider a warning shot across the bow. They told you that this, that this contact tracing and using your technology to trace your location would be used for your favor. It was used, you were told, to prevent the spread of disease, to prevent people from dying. Now you're being told, now we're finding out that at the first available opportunity, which comes just on the heels, that we don't even have a a vaccine for coronavirus. This is still a very big deal. And people are not only not social distancing because they're, you know, together burning buildings down. There, There are officials out there that are going to use this technology to try to limit or try to surreptitiously obtain information about you against you uh, without your consent and no one no one has the right to access that data without your consent guess what you paid for the device you pay for the service you generate the data if you choose to give that data away to third parties well then you've lost that right but if you haven't chosen to give that data away to third parties then you have a right to privacy and so i i don't bring this up to tell you not to participate in contact sharing or contact tracing. I am not bringing this up to tell you that you should not use location data to better your life and to be more convenient. I'm simply asking you to be aware that once a tool is introduced into uh, society, it's very difficult to take that tool away and it quickly becomes assumed. And, and so there are good examples of that. That I could cite, like things like seatbelts. I'm sure the designer of seatbelts never thought that in in the year 2020, people would getting be writing tickets and there would be entire campaigns um, for people that chose not to use his invention. Uh, similarly, I don't think the vast majority of people that have been that have said to themselves, "Well, we could put GPS chips and phones, and that would be really great." And then, if we had hatched a cellular radio and put towers all over the place, and the phone could be in constant data communication, it could just have an IP address and just live on the internet. With IPv6, it'll be even easier because there won't even be any NAT. Every device will be on the internet. This will be great. It's almost like we said. 
that this is a dangerous tool. And if used negligently or maliciously, you could seriously damage or entirely trample the privacy and more importantly, the trust of people with their governments and people that trust their technology. And I think that's something we have to take extraordinarily seriously. Again, 855 450 no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, no, I'll just, I'll just turn off the location data. That problem solved, right? Well, two years ago, an investigation by the Associated Press and the Princeton computer uh, scientists found that Google services on both Android and Apple routinely continue to track user location data, even when users opt out of such tracking. Now, if users pause the location history, the researchers found that Google Apps still automatically store timestamped location data without asking for the consumer's consent. Google says that this will prevent the company from remembering where you've been. Google support page states you can turn off location history at any time with location history off the places that you go are no longer stored. But we found out that isn't true. Even with location history paused, some Google apps automatically store timestamp location data without asking. It's possible, although it's laborious because you have to literally go through and select each one of those entries by hand, um, but you can delete them. For example, Google stores a snapshot of where you are merely by opening its Maps app. Automatically daily weather updates on Android phones pinpoint exactly where you are and some researchers that have nothing to do with location, like chocolate chip cookies or kids' science kits, pinpoint your precise latitude and longitude accurate to the square foot and save it to your Google account. Now, to stop Google from saving these locations, the company says that users can turn off another setting that, interestingly enough, has nothing to do and says nothing about location data. It's called Web and App Activity. And it's enabled by default. Now, the setting stores a variety of information from Google Apps and websites to your Google account. So that was the report that came out two and a half years ago. Fast forward to the 27th of this year. Arizona Attorney General Mike Bronovich has sued Google for violating the Arizona Consumer Fraud Act over the practice. Quote, Google told us that with location history off, the places you go are no longer stored. But as the AP article revealed, this statement was blatantly false. Even with location history off, Google surreptitiously collects location information through other settings such as web and app activities and uses that information to sell ads. At the same time, Google's disclosure regarding web and app activities mislead users into believing that the setting had nothing to do with tracking user location. Google's account setups disclosures made no mention of the fact that location information is collected through web and activity excuse me, web and app activity, which is defaulted to on until early to mid-2018. Now, again, I don't bring these stories up, and I don't reference them to scare anybody. I don't. I carry an Android phone. I'm sure that Google has my location data. I'm sure that this web and app activity is probably on on my phone. The reason I bring it up is a couple of reasons. One is it's just important to stay on top of when these cases are going to court and what the outcomes are, because I believe in the very near future, we're going to arrive at a point where we start seeing government legislation around privacy. And I think if we want to have a, if we want to have input on that discussion and we want to provide uh, meaningful insight in that, into that discussion, then we need to watch what happens with the preceding actions, because Every really bad thing that happens in life usually is preceded by a number of unwise decisions. And so if we can identify 
what the smart things to do, what the wise things to do in these situations are, and pay attention to what these companies are doing, then we're in a better position to make a determination skating down the road five, ten years when this comes up and we start talking about legislating it. And I'm, I really believe that's where this is going. In Ever since Edward Snowden did what he did, there has been a nonstop discussion trying to find a balance between enforcement with the impenetrable safe. We have now arrived at a point where it doesn't matter what warrant process you go through. It doesn't matter what judge signs off on something. If somebody has placed something in an encrypted drive and they simply close the laptop lid, it's game over, more or less. And so there is, there is, there, there is a very thin line between allowing people to commit criminal activity with no oversight and violating people's Fourth Amendment privacy rights. And I think that we are getting closer and closer to deciding to draw that line in the sand. And I think cases like this exemplify specifically why it's necessary to have some sort of oversight. Because the reality is, look, if Google wants to collect information and you want to give it to them, who am I to tell you otherwise? Who am I to tell them otherwise? But man, when you start putting options in there that say, don't save this location, and then they save that location anyway, what's to say we have all of these app permissions that we're all so proud of. Oh, well, Apple asks me for this permission and that permission. Then my Google phone asks me if I, I want to use the microphone or if I want to let this app access my location data, so on and so forth. How, what's the point of having all of that infrastructure? What's the point of building all that out? What's the point of customizing all of your privacy settings if the little buttons are just knobs on a screen? They don't really do anything. And what you have to understand about Google and what I take away from this story is that Google pays probably floors of people to sit down and say, listen, we want to be able to stay within the we want to stay within the letter of the law and the letter of a privacy policy. So when we uh, we tell people to turn off their data, location data, then we can't obviously collect location data from from that phone. What are some other ways that we can go about getting so we still know where these people are because we just we need to know that's how we sell ads. Um, and the and, and I don't know how else you arrive at you're still collecting location data even once the the, the radio button is turned off. Now they're not getting it from the GPS chip in the phone. They're there. I was I looked into it. They're they're using um, cell phone carrier companies. They know which tower IDs and what physical address those towers are located on. And so what they're doing is, or at least uh, one of the ways that they're doing this is, they're the phone records. Hey, I saw this tower at this particular time. And they can go back then and say, okay, that tower is at this geographical location. And then it reported this tower, this tower, this tower. So clearly this person took this path from here to here. Um, and while that doesn't technically violate their privacy policy because it wasn't collecting location data from the GPS chip, at the end of the day, they're still getting your location. So it seems dishonest to me. Uh, EA is open sourcing command and conquer uh, Tiberian Dawn and Red Alert. Um, they plan to release the codes for the classic real-time strategy games. They're, one of the things that is speculated is going to come out of this is the ability to use the assets to create mods. And um, they're saying that these mods could actually be quite extensive because there are a lot of assets that are involved with these two games. The open source assets could also be used in tandem with a new map editor that's part of the collection. And where I... Where I praise EA for this and a direction that I'm happy to see software industries going is it seems to be 
if they're not fully committed to open source on day one, it seems like a, a, a popular second step is to take games that are no longer the big money makers or software that's no longer the big money makers and then open source those things and say, here, community, see what you can do. And unsurprisingly, software platforms that are released as open source are now starting to see a lot of mainstream adoption. That's why OBS has become the de facto standard uh, for streaming. It's why FFmpeg has become the de facto standard for converting and transcoding media. Um, so I'm happy to see that EA is participating in this. I'm happy that we're going to get a couple more games that are going to be truly free and open source. Um, and it will be interesting to see what the community does with this. And Western Digital is in the news because they... Uh, all three hard drive companies, um, Toshiba, Western Digital, and Seagate, uh, use uh, something called shingled magnetic recording. And SMR is essentially where the, the, the hard drive platter writes in a track, in a circular, circular track. And so when you go to write the next track, of course, you can write the track next to it, or you, can, or you could theoretically, um, if there was part of the, the last track that was not completely written, you can overlap just a little bit. Um, now, this is not ideal because the, 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 the speed obviously tanks, but you can, it's a more dense way to pack data on the platters. And uh, Western Digital has been, is, is being sued because they're using SMR in their NAS drives. And all three manufacturers use SMR in their desktop hard drives, but Western Digital is the only one so far to slip it into their NAS drives. And that's, that's of note because NAT drives, NAS drives excuse me, are expected to perform well in RAID situations and multiple disk situations and ZFS pools. And uh, we'll have the, the article linked for you in the show notes, but the, one, of the, one of the graphics that really exemplify this is they did a bunch of tests. With, uh, you know, they compared the Seagate Iron Wolf, which is the competitor to the Western Digital Red, and they put it in a ZFS pool, and the Iron Wolf and every other hard drive, I might add, uh, smoked the WD Reds. And, you know, so we have to bring up that story because I've said numerous times on this program uh, and others that I am a big fan of the Western Digital Reds. I think that they're a really great drive. I think that they uh, have a very low failure rate. And I think they're very economically priced. And so that's what I have in my house. I don't plan to get rid of them anytime soon. But, you know, when you start looking at, at, at hard, especially NAS drives, there's never been a clear winner of hard drives. Every manufacturer has good years and bad years. And if you want to pick out the best drive, the best bang for the buck, what you basically have to do is, uh, is look at reviews from that specific year and see which drive manufacturers are knocking it out of the park and which drive manufacturers um, have problems. And so if you were looking at buying a Western Digital Red, I would tell you to hold off a little bit until this story finishes its course and Western Digital either reverses course. Uh, I understand that the customer service at Western Digital is swapping drives. So if you do have a drive that has SMR in it and you would like to uh, exchange it for a drive that uses the conventional um the, the, the conventional writing or, or conventional magnetic recording, I guess, would be accurate, CMR, uh, then you just contact their, their customer care and they'll help you. Kyle writes in to live at asknoahshow.com and says, Long-time listener, first-time emailer. You mentioned a long time ago a program that can record a terminal session. I can't remember if it was just track the text or literally did screen capture the user in a session, but I'm curious if you could bring this up again and give suggestions. Basically, I want to help troubleshoot issues with users and make sure that they're following the prescribed directions. 
Likewise, if they allow somebody to remotely enter their machine, they should have access to everything the user did while connected. Thanks, Kyle. I believe the software you're thinking about is Gravitational Teleport, and it is a SSH management software, a trustless SSH management software, the idea being that you give your technicians access to Gravitational Teleport, and you simply give Gravitational Teleport access to all of the servers, thereby requiring all of your employees or technicians to go through Gravitational Teleport to get access to those servers. Um, we tried it at AltaSpeed. We rolled it out. There is provisions to tying it in with the YubiKey infrastructure. We were not able to get that to work to our satisfaction, so we didn't continue forward. But if you're not using PKCS 11 smart cards to manage your SSH infrastructure, hey, Gravitational Teleport is a great piece of software and would work very well for your recording because it does uh, do recording of all the sessions. Hey, that's it for this hour. The Ask Noah Show continues 24-7, 365 at AskNoahShow.com. Don't forget to go to podcast.asknoahshow and check out the show notes for this week's episode and follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. We'll see you next week.